Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, April 24th, 2020. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. I'm sorry about the late start. I was a little disorganized this evening. We are going to present part 50 of our commentary on the Gospel of John, and this is subtitled, Adamic Dawn. In our last presentation on John chapter 20, The Open Tomb, we discussed various aspects of the events of the morning following the resurrection of Christ, and sought to properly correlate John's account with the descriptions which are found in the other three Gospels. While we continue, while we will continue doing that here to some degree, we will shift our focus to the significance of the resurrection itself, because the risen Christ also represents what we may call the Adamic dawn, as it provides for us an assurance that Yahweh our God transcends his creation, that he himself takes responsibility for his creation, and that therefore we must also understand that his promises of eternal life for the Adamic man and salvation for all of the children of Israel are assured in his resurrection. The ancient Egyptians, Sumerians, Babylonians, Assyrians, Greeks, and Romans, the earliest Adamic cultures from which we have significant literature, all believed in the immortality of the souls of men and an underworld or netherworld in which they dwelt, and often even in the judgment of men for their deeds after death. The early Greeks also expressed a belief in the possibility of resurrection from among the dead, as did the Sumerians and Babylonians, although not in Christian terms, and attributed many of the same beliefs to the ancient Galatahi. The Greeks attributed many of the same beliefs to the ancient Galatahi, Gauls or Germans, attributing their bravery in battle to beliefs they had in their own immortality. These beliefs, being found among the various Adamic nations, should not be viewed as competitors or as truthful alternatives to what is found in the Hebrew Scriptures. That would merely be a repeat of the mistakes of the past and a failure to learn from our history. Rather, they should be viewed as reflecting certain core beliefs that the earliest Adamic ancestors of each of those nations, as they are listed in the genealogies found in Genesis chapter 10, had all held in common in prehistoric times. As the nations multiplied, and were separated from their primordial ancestors. The myths began to diverge and suffered different embellishments in diverse places 
as they were also influenced by the wayward pagan beliefs of alien peoples. Those groups related to the people whom the Hebrew scriptures identify as Nephilim, which are the so-called fallen angels. But Yahweh, the God of Israel, announced long before it ever happened through his prophets that he would cause his people to forget the names of the idols of the alien nations and to worship him as he was their savior and redeemer, Yahshua Christ. The fulfillment of those and many other prophecies concerning the Messiah and the children of Israel proves beyond doubt that he is true and that therefore the Christian perspective of these things is indeed the true perspective regardless of how intriguing or how similar the beliefs of the surrounding nations had been. Another signal proof that the God of the Bible is true lies in the fact that most white Europeans or their near ancestors have possessed and read Hebrew Bibles, while Marduk, Ishtar, Tammuz, Bel in all of its variations, Isis, Osiris, Zeus, Apollo, Anath, or Athena, Artemis, Dagon, Venus, Mars, Saturn, Dionysius, Odin, Freyr, Baldur, and perhaps thousands of other ancient Aryan idols are all dead and practically forgotten. Except, of course, for a few New Age lunatics and their Jewish and other non-white companions. So, this is true in spite of recent developments where once again we live in a sinful and apostate society in which the worship of some of these idols have been revived by the enemies of Christ and the fools who follow after them. In Genesis chapter 3, as soon as the account of the fall of Adam is related, there is a promise of redemption for him and his entire race, where we read in reference to Adam, that now lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. As we have explained frequently, the cherubim, which were placed to keep the way of the tree of life, were intended to preserve it. And later, they are found atop the Ark of the Covenant, wherein the law was kept. So, we should discern that the law, the keeping of the law, is the path to the tree of life. And keeping it, man preserves his own race rather than engaging in the race mixing which had initially caused his fall. So in the period leading up to the dispersion of the sons of Noah, over 2,500 years after the fall of Adam, in accordance with the chronology of the Septuagint, the race must have had relatively a relatively common mythos, which is reflected in the common beliefs found in the records of the later historical nations. The keeping of the law, which is the way of the tree of life, is also the way by which the Messiah, Yahweh God incarnate, had come into the world as we read in Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of the time was come, 
God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. He himself is the true vine. Who said in John chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me, and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Yahshua Christ being the tree of life, the keeping of the law is also the path to him. And that is why no bastard will ever be accepted by him, because every bastard comes into the sheepfold by some way other than the door of the sheep. In a passage which I have quoted frequently, in chapter 2 of the Wisdom of Solomon, we see a contrast of the righteous and the wicked, where the wicked are enemies of God and not his Adamic children. And it says, For if the just man be the son of God, or in Greek properly, a son of God, there's no definite article. The translation is unfortunate. For if the just man be a son of God, you're a just man, but you're a son of God first. And if you're not a son of God, even if you appear to be a just man, you don't have anything coming. This is chapter 2 of the Wisdom of Solomon, verse 18. For if the just man be a son of God, he will help him and deliver him from the hand of his enemies. Next, Solomon puts words into the mouths of those enemies who are evidently devils or false accusers. Let us examine him with despitefulness and torture that we may know his meekness and prove his patience. Let us condemn him with a shameful death for by his own saying he shall be respected. Then Solomon responds to his dialogue. Such things did they imagine and were deceived, for their own wickedness has blinded them. As for the mysteries of God, they knew them not, neither hoped they for the wages of righteousness, nor discerned a reward for blameless souls. The enemies of God scoffed at the thought that the children of God are promised immortality and rewards for blamelessness. So Solomon professes in verse 23 of the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 2. For God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Nevertheless, through envy of the devil came death into the world, and they that do hold of his side do find it. They that hold of his side, not merely they who choose to follow the devil, but they who commit fornication, as the apostles had likened it to the way of Cain and the error of Balaam. And the fruits of their sin shall never be accepted. In contrast, as we read in 1 John chapter 3, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So a little later on in the wisdom of Solomon, in the early verses of chapter 3, and the chapter divisions were, of course, added thousands of years after Solomon actually wrote, we read, 
but the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God, and there shall no torment touch them. In the sight of the unwise, they seem to die, because true wisdom is faith in God. In the sight of the unwise, they seem to die, and their departure is taken for misery, and they're going from us to the utter destruction, speaking of the dead. But they are in peace, for though they be punished in the sight of men, yet is their hope full of immortality, speaking of those same children of God. If the just man is a child of God. So the original intention of Yahweh is for the man of his creation, the Adamic man, to be immortal, which is also evident in the Genesis account, and God shall not fail. Thus Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, and I'm paraphrasing from the Christogenia New Testament, where I will also add some comments. For this reason, just as by one man, Adam, sin entered into the society, and by that sin, death, and in that manner, death has passed to all men on account that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the society, but sin was not accounted, there not being law. But death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who would not sin resembling the transgression of Adam, who is an image of the future. All Adamic men shall be restored to the state in which Adam was originally created. But should not, verse 15 of Romans chapter 5, but should not, as was the transgression, in that manner also be the favor. If indeed, if, if indeed in the transgression of one many die, meaning all the descendants of Adam, much greater is the favor of Yahweh and the gift in favor, which is of the one man, Yahshua Christ, in which many, all the descendants of Adam, have great advantage. And then not by one having committed error is the gift. Indeed, the fact is that the judgment of a single one is for condemnation, meaning the judgment which was suffered by the innocent and sinless Christ. But the favor is from many transgressions into a judgment of acquittal because Yahweh God decided to acquit the entire Adamic race. For if in the transgression of one, death has taken reign through that one, much more is the advantage of the favor and the gift of justice they are receiving. In life, they will reign through the one, Yahshua Christ. So then, as that one transgression, verse 18, is for all men for a sentence of condemnation. In this manner then, through one decision of judgment for all men is for a judgment of life, the decision by God to die as a man for the redemption of his people, which also demonstrates that he keeps his own law, even if they cannot. Therefore, even as through the disobedience of one man, the many were set down as sinners, verse 19. In this manner, through the obedience 
of one through Christ, the many will be established as righteous. Paul himself had summarized what he had expressed here in Romans chapter 15, where he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 5, where he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for as in Adam all men die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Here I have also asserted that Yahweh himself takes responsibility for his creation. As he had placed the Adamic man in danger of failure, because the world was already in a state of sin when Adam was created. The serpent and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which represents the race of the fallen angels, and that's an entire separate presentation, which we have already done here in the discourse of our commentary on John. The serpent and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were already in the garden in Genesis. Therefore, the rebellion of the so-called angels who had left their first estate had already taken place, and the creation of God was already corrupted. These things were not revealed to men in Genesis but they were revealed in Christ as one purpose of his coming, which is expressed in Matthew chapter 13, which was to other things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Since Yahweh placed his Adamic creation in danger from the beginning, he himself also provided the path to recovery as the tree of life, who paid the ultimate penalty in order to redeem them from death, arising from death to ensure his creation that they also would live. In our May 2014 commentary on Romans chapter 7, discussing Paul's discourse on the law and sin through verses 12 and 13, I wrote the following. The good in Paul can read the law and recognize that his behavior, which was contrary to the law, was sinful, and also acknowledge the punishment which he merited for that behavior. The good in Paul can recognize that sinful behavior merited death, and therefore, Paul is describing a learning process. The result is that the Adamic man understands how important it is to keep the law of Yahweh in his heart and to do his best to abide by it. It is important that the sin becomes evident by the commandment so that the Adamic man can experience sin, and by that experience, he can learn not to do evil. Then, a little further on in that same commentary on Romans chapter 5, I believe, or chapter 7, I'm sorry, from the Septuagint, from the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 15. But thou, O God, art gracious and true, long-suffering, and in mercy ordering all things. For if we sin, we are thine, knowing thy power. But we will not sin, knowing that we are counted thine. For to know thee is perfect righteousness. Yeah, 
To know thy power is the root of immortality. The same thing the apostle John taught in the opening verses of his, of chapter two of his first epistle, the wisdom of Solomon taught in the opening verses of chapter 15. So John, Solomon, and Paul are all on the same page. For the same reason, Paul tells the Galatians in chapter three of his epistle to them, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Therefore, we conclude that the reason for the presence of the children of God in this evil world is so that they may know sin and learn the importance of obedience. Each, still quoting my Romans chapter 7 commentary, each and every Adamic man was created to be immortal. If each and every Adamic man does not have eternal life, then the lessons concerning sin and the need for obedience are pointless. And God has evidently failed. God has failed because he would not have completely destroyed the works of the devil who deceived the woman, causing the man to sin and thereby caused the man to die. Yet here in Romans, we find that God certainly has not failed. And the Apostle Paul has explained how in Christ, each and every Adamic man shall be made alive. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and that's the end of my citation of my 2014 commentaries on Romans. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, Solomon described the vanity of man as this sore travail. God has given to the sons of man, or Adam, to be exercised therewith. Likewise, Paul of Tarsus, who had Solomon for his inspiration, writing in Romans chapter 8 in reference to the Adamic creation, said, therefore, I consider that the happenstances of the present time are not of value, looking to the future honor to be revealed to us. Indeed, in earnest anticipation, the creation awaits the revelation of the sons of Yahweh. To transientness, or as it's expressed in the book of Ecclesiastes, to vanity. To transientness, the creation was subjected not willingly, but on account of he who subjected it in expectation. As Solomon said, this sore travail has God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. God subjected the sons of Adam to vanity, to transientness. Not willingly. We didn't volunteer for it. But on account of he who subjected it in expectation, the words of Paul, that also the creation itself shall be liberated from the bondage of decay, meaning the Adamic creation. The children of Adam shall be liberated from the bondage of decay, corruption, death, into the freedom of the honor of the children of Yahweh.
if indeed they are children of Yahweh. Of course, the non-Adamic races are not sheep, and all goats had their fate in the same lake of fire which was prepared for the devil and his angels. The Sumerians, Babylonians, Greeks, and Romans all believed that the souls of the dead occupied Hades, or the netherworld. But there was little hope in what they believed, since in their myths, redemption from the dead was very rare and reserved only for those who were the most favored by the gods for one reason or another. Sometimes they were favored for some nefarious reason. For example, the Trojan youth, Ganymede, was esteemed to be especially handsome, and in works of literature as early as the Iliad of Homer, Zeus, the supreme god of the Greeks, was portrayed as a sodomite and a pedophile who abducted the boy and kept him for his own sexual pleasure. On the other hand, Plato had accused the Cretans, even though Homer evidently repeated it, Plato had accused the Cretans of devising that myth in order to justify their own perversions. So even the ancient Greeks were divided on points of morality. The myth was also extant among ancient Romans, whose name for Ganymede was Catamidus, from which we get the word catamite, which today in English describes a young boy corrupted in sodomy, in sodomy by an adult pedophile, the lover, the young boy lover of an adult pedophile is called a catamite rather disgustingly. In the Sumerian legend of Tammuz, the consort of Ishtar, who is mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 8, where the women of Judah are said to have wept for him, even in the temple of Yahweh, it was believed that one may travel back and forth, alternating between life on earth and death in the netherworld. Fragments of this myth have been discovered by archaeologists, which are esteemed to be as early as 2600 BC, 600 years before the time of Abraham. This is certainly one significant early embellishment on the original beliefs in an afterlife and evident promises of resurrection which were once shared by the wider Adamic race. Resurrection from among the dead was also found in the ancient Greek poets, such as Euripides in his play Alcestis, where the woman was said to have given her life on behalf of her husband and was later rewarded when Heracles brought her back from Hades and restored her to her husband. Wherein Acts chapter 17. Certain Athenians had scoffed at Paul 
for preaching the resurrection of the dead. They had, by that time, turned their backs on their own ancient myths and legends, which many of the epic and classical poets seem to have only parodied. In recent times, the enemies of Christ have done that same thing with our Christian faith through their control of the entertainment media. They've only parodied it. And actually, through their parodies, it's basically pretty much become the norm in the Judeo-Christian churches. So while we must reject these ancient variations and corruptions of the truths which are represented in our scriptures, they nevertheless represent a common truth once held by our entire race as the account in Genesis chapter 3 and other early accounts in Genesis certainly also suggest. For this reason, the reconciliation of God and man, which is in Christ, was also described in various places by the apostles in terms which the wider ancient pagan world could understand. So we read in 1 Peter chapter 3, For Christ also had once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which he also went and preached to the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient when the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. Then in chapter 4 of the same epistle, Peter clarified his meaning where he wrote in reference to what he had said there in chapter 3. For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Peter is telling us that Christ had reconciled the dead souls of our Adamic race to God as soon as he was crucified, even those that died during the flood who were the preeminent sinners of all history up to that time. So the reconciliation which is in Christ is not only a reconciliation of the children of Israel, but it is also the fulfillment of that promise in Genesis chapter 3, which was made to the entire race of Adam, that grasping the tree of life, the entire race would be restored to the immortality which it was created to enjoy. At the same time, however, Abraham was promised that his seed or offspring would inherit the nations, and that promise was fulfilled by the time of Christ. While there were still other Genesis 10 nations, or at least remnants of those nations in Europe, Mesopotamia, and elsewhere, the world came to be dominated by tribes which descended, in whole or in part, from the children of Israel, which includes the Romans, the Macedonian and Dorian Greeks, the Phoenicians of the West. 
the Parthians of the east, and the Scythians, Galatahe, and Chimerians of the north. So in the Christian era, these are the subjects of the scriptures, the so-called Gentiles, for whom the gospel was intended, the nations which came of the children of Israel. Besides the writings of Homer, there were many accounts depicting the captivity of the souls of the dead in Hades. Resurrection, or the possibility of resurrection, which are throughout early Greek literature. The Greek word Hades was originally the name of the idol, the god which they imagined to have ruled over the netherworld, which was called Tartarus. In 2 Peter chapter 2, where the apostle said that God had cast the angels that sinned into hell. The Greek word translated as cast into hell in the King James Version is tartaro, which literally means to cast into Tartarus. Eventually, in Greek writing, the name Tartarus was displaced by Hades where the name of the idol it eventually became the name of the place. Even the English word hell comes from the name of the old Germanic pagan goddess Hela, a giantess who they saw as ruling the netherworld. For that reason, the netherworld was called hell. In the earliest extant Germanic myths, it was called Niflhel. Nifl means mist. Niflhel was a world of cold and darkness. While the ancient Hebrews used the term Sheol rather than Hades, speaking Greek, Yahshua Christ himself had used the word Hades in his gospel and in the Revelation where he promised that ultimately both death and hell, or Hades, would be cast into the lake of fire. Likewise, announcing the victory of Christ over death, Paul of Tarsus wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, or Hades, O grave, where is thy victory? That word grave is the Greek word Hades. It may be said that grave is a fair representation of the word in the physical, worldly sense. But the Adamic spirit lives on, and Hades, the netherworld, the Hebrew Sheol, represented the imagery by which the ancients had depicted the alienation of the spirits of Adamic men from God, where in Christ, the entire race now has reconciliation with God. But Paul was citing Hosea chapter 13, where Yahweh spoke of the children of Israel and said, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, or Sheol in Hebrew, or in Paul's Greek, Hades. O grave, I will be thy destruction. 
In the Septuagint Greek, it was also Hades. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. In other words, Yahweh will not repent of his promise to destroy the grave, which represents the death of his people. If we believe there is a God of creation, something which all intelligent men should believe, because those who are tricked by the Jewish secularists, evolutionists, and atheists are actually stupid when they think they're intelligent. If we believe that there is a God of creation, something which all intelligent men should believe, then we must also perceive that it is no great thing for God to overcome death for himself since he is eternal and since he is the author of life and therefore also the master of life, existing even outside of life and creation itself. So, Christ had said, as it is recorded in John chapter 10, as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore does my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down to myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. <laughs> this commandment I have received of my Father with all of the confidence of one who had absolute knowledge, Yahshua Christ expected to overcome death. So it is no great thing to expect that God can overcome death. But it is a great and wonderful thing for Christ to demonstrate to man that his having overcome death represents the fact that the entire race of Adam is destined to overcome death. And in his resurrection, he is a sign of that immortality for which man was created in the first place. With his own immortality assured in Christ, man should therefore understand the importance of obedience to God and choose to keep his commandments. The realization that the light had come into the world to fulfill that promise of eternal life, which was made to the Adamic man, surely can be described as an Adamic dawn. I almost wanted to term this program Aryan dawn. The coming of that dawn was prophesied in Malachi chapter 4, for behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yeah, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day that comes shall burn them up, saith Yahweh of hosts, and it shall leave them neither root nor branch, the day that we anticipate. But unto you that fear my name, shall the Son of Righteousness arise with 
healing in his wings, the Adamic Don, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. The sun of righteousness has arisen, although the wordplay is only evident in English and not in Hebrew or Greek. And for that reason, the cherubs and the flaming sword, which preserved the path to the tree of life, were placed on the east end of the garden, which is symbolic of where the sun rises. Therefore, as soon as our race accepts the true implications of those things which are spelled out in his gospel, as we read in the very next verse of Malachi, And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet, in the day that I shall do this, saith Yahweh of hosts. Likewise, and for this same reason, Paul of Tarsus had written in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that Christians should be in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. 2 Chronicles 7.14 Repent and he will heal our land. So, so far in this chapter, John chapter 20, without once again filling in all of the details from the other Gospels, John had described where Mary Magdalene discovered the open and empty tomb how she had run into the city to alert the disciples of Christ, and how Peter and John came to observe what she had seen. Then, after they returned, she remained and encountered the angels, or messengers, in the tomb. Then, upon her speaking to them, she turned to see Christ himself outside of the tomb, although at first she thought that he may have only been a gardener, and not recognizing him until he had spoken to her. He told her to go and announce what she saw to my brethren, and John reported that she had done as he commanded. Now, resuming with chapter 20, where we had left off, it is evident that at least several of the apostles had been staying at a house in Jerusalem. But first, in regard to that, we will have a digression. While this is conjecture, this may be the home of John Mark, the Mark of the Gospel of that same name, who was not an original apostle, but who was indeed an early disciple. In Acts chapter 12, after Peter was miraculously released from prison, he went directly to a house owned by Mary, another Maria or Mariam. There were, it, it seems like, Every other woman was named Mary back in the first century in Judea. And this Mary was the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. The same Mark later accompanied Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 15. Paul later asked Timothy to bring him to Rome with him when he was under arrest in Rome and had sent for Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And that's actually probably about 20 years later than Acts chapter 15. 
Mark then arrived in Rome with Timothy, which we learn from Colossians chapter 4 and Philemon verse 24. And after that, he was present with Peter in Babylon, from where Peter wrote his surviving first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 5. Even later, apparently after the death of Peter, Mark wrote his gospel from accounts which Peter had passed on to him, and evidently he wrote it in Rome, which some of the terms he used helps to elucidate and to which several of the early so-called church fathers also attest. Now, that's conjecture. This could be John Mark's house. That's the only house I've seen in the Gospel records identified at any particular time that the apostles had refuge in, as Peter took refuge, and other Christians were taking refuge there in Acts chapter 12, several years after this, but that's only a digression. Returning now to John chapter 20, from where we had left off in our last presentation, in verse 19, the episode and the interaction between Christ and Mary Magdalene at the garden tomb where he had been buried had just ended in John's Gospel. Then, it being late on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors being barred where the students were, on account of fear of the Judeans, fear of the Jews, Yahshua came and stood in the middle and says to them, Peace to you. And while I sought to be as little as as literal as possible in my translation, the phrase stood in the middle may have been rendered colloquially, stood in their midst. However, stood in the middle is actually a word-for-word -word literal translation of the Greek. We would say Yahshua stood among them or stood in the midst of them. John does not inform us as to which apostles were present here. But apparently, they were not all present. A few verses later, he does explain that Thomas was not there at this time. Here, John is writing from his own personal perspective. And other things surely did happen on this day, which John did not record. This is evident in Paul's epistle to the Corinthians. But Paul of Tarsus wrote his epistles to the Corinthians at a much later time than when these events had occurred, and Paul had many opportunities to learn about them in detail from various apostles, as it is evident in Acts chapters 9 through 15 and in his epistle to the Galatians. So while John is evidently giving a summary of things which occurred from his own perspective, Paul's account seems to provide a more complete description, which was most likely compiled from several different sources where he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And I should say a more complete description in 
some respects because it's not more complete in every respect. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I had also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and he rose again from the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas. Now, Cephas is the... Hebrew equivalent of Peter. Peter is actually Petros. It means stone in Greek. And Cephas means stone in Hebrew. And Paul often called Simon Peter Cephas. It may have been simply a pet name which Paul had for Peter. An affectionate sort of name, calling him Cephas in Hebrew. Because it's pretty clear in all of the other gospel accounts that when Yahshua called Simon Petrus or stone, that he called him Petrus in Greek. But that's okay. And that he was seen of Cephas. Then of the twelve, after that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present or this present day, but some are fallen asleep. They have gone to, onto their death. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And of course, there's no more Hades after the resurrection of Christ because he destroyed the gates of hell. That saying in Greek isn't in scripture. But it represents how even medieval Christians understood the Gospels, that Christ destroyed the gates of hell. He destroyed Hades because the Adamic race is reconciled to God. So when post-Christian Adamites pass on, as Paul says in other epistles, they are present with God or present with the Lord, or the Prince, or however you want to interpret that term, kurios. It refers to Yahweh and Yahshua because they are one, not three, or parts of three. So he was seen by 500 brethren at once, and then uh, by James, and then by all of the apostles. Where Paul said that Christ was first seen by Peter, that may indeed represent something which happened at some earlier point this very day which John describes. But John does not record it. Then, Paul mentioned the twelve. But by that general statement, he may or may not have meant to include James. And of course, he was not including Judas Iscariot, whereby the twelve were actually only the 11. Where Paul then mentioned James specifically, he certainly meant the elder James, the half-brother of Christ and author of the epistle by that name, who had apparently remained at Jerusalem for at least most of the remainder of his life until he was stoned by the Sadducees in 62 AD. James was indeed accounted among the original 12 apostles, along with Judas or Jude, another half-brother of Christ, as they are listed in Luke chapter 12. Christ himself had prophesied 
what would happen to his disciples after he was arrested, where he was referring to Zechariah chapter 13 and said, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 26, all ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. Perhaps where the apostles are now gathered together only a few days later, they are still not completely gathered. So while Paul said here that after seeing Peter, Christ was seen then of the twelve, he may have simply been summarizing the several appearances which Christ had made to the apostles first in Jerusalem and later in Galilee. John never mentions them all. But as he describes an appearance of Christ in Galilee to the apostles in chapter 21 of his gospel, he mentions that seven of them were present. Although doing that, he names only five of the seven. Furthermore, it is possible that Paul believed that James was among the twelve, or properly eleven, but mentions him again separately because Christ may have had some later appearance to James by himself. And that is consistent with the fact that Paul mentioned that Christ appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Well, Peter would be part of the twelve. So why not would he why not why could James not be part of the twelve and then Christ later appears to James separately? So there's really no conflict here with the perception of the twelve and other gospel accounts. None whatsoever. It might seem that way on the surface. Luke only names one of the two disciples who encountered Christ on the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24. But from his account in that chapter of his gospel, it is clear that they were not of the original 12 apostles, as he says that after their experience, they returned to Jerusalem, and Luke is more precise, they returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and those with them, saying that the prince really has arisen and appeared to Simon. So where Paul said that Yahshua first appeared to Simon, Luke seems to corroborate that from the words of the men on the road to Emmaus, that the prince really has arisen and appeared to Simon, and then these men are in the room as Christ appeared to the twelve in the account of Luke. So Luke seems to corroborate Paul from the words of the men on the road to Emmaus, although John does not mention it here. As a digression, if today there was a robbery or a shooting, imagine that you just saw it, and the culprit escaped in an automobile. One witness may notice it was blue and had four doors. Another witness, maybe you, may say it was grayish in color and had missing hubcaps. And a third witness may say it was blue or gray and had a dented fender. 
A wise detective is not going to assume that all three witnesses are liars. Rather, he would put the pieces together and look for a faded blue or blue-gray car with four doors, missing hubcaps, and a dented fender. This is only common sense. But rather than doing this where the gospel accounts are concerned, many of the enemies of Christ would rather scoff and consider the apostles to be liars, something which is certainly not true. Put the pieces together. Take what Luke said, add it to what John said, add it to what Mark said, add it to what Matthew said, add it to what Paul may have heard and said later in his epistles, or Luke in Acts, put it all together and get the whole picture. So here Christ had appeared to at least several of his apostles who were gathered in a house in Jerusalem. And he apparently entered the room where they were staying in a way that they could not fathom. Since the doors had been barred for fear of the Jews, so the apostles also feared that after they had killed Christ, the Jews would next come for them. After Christ greeted them, John continues, and saying this, he showed the hands and the ribs to them, literally that is, that is side, not ribs. He showed the hands and the ribs to them. Therefore, the students rejoiced seeing the prince, or the Lord, if you will. This once again indicates that the apostles may not have immediately recognized him, but were certainly assured that it was him once they saw his wounds. There is much discussion and speculation in Christian circles as to the nature of the glorified resurrected body usually from idealized interpretations of the words of Paul of Tarsus. For example, at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which I won't repeat here. But the Apostle John himself had written in chapter 3 of his first epistle, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Here we see that the resurrected body of Christ still bore the scars which had helped to cause his death. That does not necessarily mean that we will carry our own scars for eternity, but perhaps it is an indication that we should not really speculate on things which we cannot possibly yet know. If the Apostle John said, we don't yet know what we shall be, none of us should be bold enough to think that we know more than John. Then Yahshua said to them again, Peace to you, just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Christ had already told his apostles that the gospel would go out into all the world, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 24, 
as they were still together and leaving the temple in the days before his arrest. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Then again, a short time later, in Matthew chapter 26, speaking of Mary, the sister of Martha, verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, there shall also this, that this woman is done, be told for a memorial of her. Then, the night before he was crucified, he had said, as it is recorded in John chapter 17, where he was speaking of the Holy Spirit, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceeds from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. And this also is proof of the veracity of Christianity, that Yahshua Christ said his gospel would be preached in all the world, and it was. And how many of us know anything today about the gods of the Assyrians or the gods of the Egyptians or the pagan gods of the Greeks and Romans or the pagan philosophies of the Greeks? Certainly, medieval Christians had preserved their writings, but how many of them understand the, and have read the words of Plato or Epicurus or the founders of the Stoics, the Stoic philosophers? How many of us have seen their writings and have believed them? Nobody, nobody, nobody for 1,800 years, nobody, that alone is further proof that Yahshua Christ is God. Because he sat there and he said, this gospel is going to go out throughout all the world, but the gospel hadn't even been written when he made those statements. None of them. So by this time, the apostles must have surmised that they would fulfill the prophecy of the gospel of Christ, which is found in Isaiah chapter 52. So it was even spoken 700 years before Christ that it would happen. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace, that brings good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that saith unto Zion, the mountain of Zion represents the body of the children of Israel, thy God reigneth, Paul in chapter 10 of his epistle to the Romans, cited that passage of Isaiah in that same regard, that it applied to the spread of the gospel of Christ. So we continue with verse 22. And saying this, he inhaled and says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. The errors of any which you should forgive, they are forgiven, they are forgiven them. I'm sorry, this is sometimes hard to read because I have all of my um, translation notes for alternate renderings in the different manuscripts interspersed in the verse, and I can't always read it correctly. 
I can't always read it correctly. I have to skip over the notes that I'm not presenting in a podcast. The errors of any which you should forgive, they are forgiven them. Of any you should maintain, they are maintained. In the original text of the Christogenia New Testament, I found an error here, and it's minor, in verse 23, which was probably just a typing error, where the first clause of verse 23 had read, the errors of any of you should forgive. It should have read, the errors of any you should forgive. It w- there was an extra of in there. The mistake is not in my original handwritten translation, which I still have here. So it must have been a typing error. The action of Christ here evokes the description of the creation of Adam as it is in Genesis chapter 2. And Yahweh God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. But here Christ is not breathing into the nostrils of the disciples. Rather, this is only symbolic of the Holy Spirit, which they would receive at the first Christian Pentecost, which happened nearly seven weeks later, Pentecost being the 50th day from Passover, counting inclusively. They counted inclusively where where the day today is day one rather than day zero, right? So you come to 50 instead of 49. But it's called Pentecost, which literally means 50 in Greek, or it's from a word that means 50 in Greek, but it's really seven weeks from the Passover, 49 days, the way we would count, 49 days after today, not seven weeks, including today, which is 50 days. That's how we get Pentecost from the Feast of Weeks, which the books of the law say are seven Sabbaths, or seven weeks after Passover. These words of Christ also serve to explain why forgiveness and repentance are equally important. In the parable of the wicked servant recorded in Matthew chapter 18, he illustrated that those who are unforgiving may not be forgiven of their own sins. As the wicked servant was forgiven a great debt, but in turn, he had neglected to forgive those who were indebted to him, beating them instead, demanding his money. But on the other hand, Christ told Peter that a penitent, not a Roman Catholic penitent, a penitent is actually properly simply one who has repented of some sin. A penitent must be forgiven as many as 70 times seven times, so long as they professed repentance, as it is recorded in that same chapter, Matthew 18. Evidently, sins which have been forgiven by those whom we trespass against will not have to be accounted for by Christians at the judgment seat of Christ. As Paul had said in his first epistle to Timothy in chapter 5, 
Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. Of course, all of this applies only to Adamic men, to men of the white race which is descended from Noah and his sons. The others don't matter. They are all going into the lake of fire. They are all goats. It doesn't matter if they sinned or did good. It doesn't matter who they are or how they conducted their lives. They're all going to the lake of fire. Towards the end of chapter 24 of the Gospel of Luke, the two disciples, Cleopas and another who is not named, spoke with Christ on the road to Emmaus. After he reveals himself to them, and makes them aware of the scriptures concerning him and his resurrection. We read, And arising, at that moment, they returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and those with them. So there were even more than the twelve, as Paul said it, or the eleven, as Luke said it. Saying that the prince really has arisen and appeared to Simon, which corroborates what Paul described later. And they related the things on the road, and that he had become known to them as he broke the bread. Then upon their speaking these things, he stood in their midst, meaning Christ, and says to them, Peace to you. But being troubled and becoming frightened, they imagined to be seeing a spirit. Luke's description is different and much more elaborate than the account supplied by John. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and for what reason do disputes arise in your hearts? You see my hands and my feet, that I am he. You touch me and see that a spirit has not flesh and bones, just as you see me having. And saying this, he showed them the hands and feet. But upon their still being incredulous from joy and wondering, they still didn't believe him. He said to them, have you any food here? And they gave to him a piece of broiled fish. And taking it, he ate before them. So whoever the two disciples were, since Cleopas is not mentioned elsewhere, they knew the apostles well enough to gain entrance to the house and the locked room where they were staying. And here we see that Luke filled Many details that John did not include, I should say, Luke recounted many details that John did not include. One witness saw a blue car with no hubcaps, another witness saw a blue or perhaps a gray car with, with a dented fender. They were both seeing the same car from different perspectives. Now, where he continues, he is describing a later event, and John writes in verse 24, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, who is called twin, was not with them when Yahshua came. The King James Version never translated the nickname given to Thomas, which was Didymus. The adjective Didymus means double, twofold, or twain in Greek, and it is therefore twin throughout our translation of John. 
in this form, according to Liddell and Scott, it was used to describe one of a pair of twins, properly a dual form of the word. Didymaon was used to describe twins. But for that, there was also a plural form of didymus, didymoi, where it was used as a substantive. Neither of those forms appear in the New Testament. The difference seems to indicate that whoever was this Thomas's twin brother, he was not one of the other apostles since they are never referred to together. This also may indicate that other brothers found among the other pairs of brothers found among the apostles. James and Jude, the half-brothers of Christ, and the sons of Zebedee, the younger James, and this apostle John, were probably not twins. The other apostles mention Thomas as one of the twelve. The other gospels, I should say, I'm sorry, mention Thomas as one of the twelve. But only John tells us this nickname, where it appears three times in his gospel. We are not informed as to how Thomas had become an apostle. We aren't informed of how all of them became apostles, but we are of some of them. Verse 25. Therefore, the other students said to him, meaning to Thomas, we have seen the prince. But he said to them, unless I could see the imprint of the nails in his hands, and I put my finger in the imprint of the nails, and I put my hand in his side, I shall not believe. And of course, this is where we have the English phrase, doubting Thomas, which has long ago come to be used of people who are skeptical of something which they have not seen for themselves. Mark Downey was the biggest doubting Thomas I ever knew, but that's okay. We love Mark. And after eight days, his students were inside again, and Thomas with them, the doors being barred. Yahshua comes and stood in the middle, or stood in their midst, and said, Peace to you. As we learn in the writings of Luke, in Acts chapter 1, Christ had appeared at least several times to his apostles over a period of 40 days, which also means that his ascension, as it is described in that chapter, took place only a few days, perhaps as little as three or four days before the Pentecost events described in Acts chapter 2. Here it seems that being inside again and the doors once again being barred, that the disciples are in the same house in Jerusalem which they had been in on the day that the empty tomb was discovered when Christ first appeared to them. But none of the details of these events are described in the other Gospels, nor are the events found in John chapter 21, mentioned in other Gospels. Of course, 
the end of Mark's original gospel is wanting. And there is nothing authentic after he records the discovery of the open tomb by Mary Magdalene. In Matthew, of the meeting with the apostles on the day following his resurrection, as it is described in chapter 27, we read only, And behold, Yahshua met with them, saying, Greetings. And they, having come forth, grasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Yahshua says to them, Do not fear. Go report to my brethren that they should depart into Galilee, and there they shall see me. But the events which took place in the interim, such as this one, eight days after the resurrection, are not recorded. Once they see Christ in Galilee, Matthew's account of the events there are reduced to five short verses. I really can't say it because I have no basis for it, but I really suspect the last seven or eight verses of Matthew's account were tampered with at early times, but I can't prove that, so you didn't hear it from me, but I that they're in they're consistent in all of the ancient manuscripts that we have, but I always thought something was fishy, but I can't say it because I can't prove it. So I'll let it go with that. That's um just my feelings. We cannot, we cannot ever base doctrine on feelings. That's just the way it is. We could smell a rat. But unless we see the rat, we can't call it a rat. That's all I'll say with that. Mark, it's easy to see that the ending of Mark was tampered with. It's just missing and two substitute endings, or I actually think three, but I'm familiar with two. Two substitute endings were put in its place. One of them in the King James Version Bible that we now have is also in most other popular Bible translations, but it doesn't belong. Pentecostals still go around handling snakes because the end of Mark says it's cool to do that, and some of them end up poisoned and dying, and deservedly so. Their pastors would take the ultimate blame for that. The events which took place in the interim, such as this one, eight days after the resurrection, are not recorded in Matthew. Once they see Christ in Galilee, Matthew's account of the events there are reduced to five short verses, the so-called Great Commission. After Luke's description of the first appearance of Christ to the apostles, the last ten verses of his gospel are very concise. And seem to reflect things that actually may have happened at different times. And perhaps I will discuss that as we present John chapter 21. Now, so that Thomas no longer suffers from his incredulity, then he, meaning Christ, says to Thomas, Bring your finger here and look at my hands, and bring your hand and put it into my side. And you must not be faithless, but faithful. Thomas replied and said to him, My prince and my God, or my Lord and my God. Once Thomas realized that this truly was Yahshua Christ who had been resurrected from the dead, he announced that he is God. 
But since there is only one God, and since Thomas's profession went unchallenged for blasphemy, then here, Thomas's realization of the consequences of the resurrection of Christ must be true, that Jesus Christ is indeed Yahweh God incarnate. While it was not revealed explicitly in the course of his ministry, it was asserted in many different ways. But here Thomas makes the statement explicitly that Jesus Christ is God. So here, upon his resurrection, it is revealed that Yahshua Christ is indeed Yahweh God incarnate. The physical manifestation of God within his own creation, which he planned as an inevitable development right from the beginning of creation, since Yahshua is also the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Thomas could only have made this explanation because he understood the consequences of Christ's resurrection. As Yahweh said in Isaiah chapter 44, Thus saith Yahweh the King of Israel and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts. I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. So, if Yahshua fulfilled the things that the Messiah was to fulfill, then he must be Yahweh God come in the flesh. There's no other alternative. In many other places throughout the last 25 chapters in Isaiah, the same assertions are made in different contexts, always speaking of forgiveness, redemption, salvation, and reconciliation for the scattered lost sheep of the tribes of the children of Israel. Yahshua says to him, the answer of Christ to Thomas. Because you have seen me, you believe. Blessed are those not seeing and believing. This seems to be an allusion to Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4, and a prophecy of the very purpose of the gospel of Christ. Reading from the end of Isaiah chapter 63, there is a dialogue in which the prophet attributes these words, among others, to the scattered children of Israel. And it says in part, Doubtless thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel, meaning Jacob, acknowledges us not. Thou, O Yahweh, art our father, our redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. O Yahweh, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways, and hardened our heart from thy fear? Return for thy servant's sake, the tribes of thine inheritance. The people of thy holiness have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary, the Assyrians and Babylonians. We are thine. Thou never bearest rule over them. They were not called by thy name. Oh, that thou wouldest rend the heavens, that thou wouldest come down. And Christ did just that. He came from above. That the mountains might flow down at thy presence. 
as when the melting fire burneth, the fire causeth the waters to boil, to make thy name known to thine adversaries, that the nations may tremble at thy presence. When thou didst terrible things, which we looked not for, thou camest down, the mountains floated thy presence, the judgment which was against the children of Israel. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither has the eye seen, O God, besides thee, what he has prepared for him that waits for him. The implication is that the eye had not yet seen, nor had an ear yet heard how it was that Yahweh would redeem Israel. As scattered Israel was made to admit that they are unknown, unknown by their own fathers, and for their sins they required such a salvation. Paul of Tarsus cited the same passage in chapter 2 of his first epistle to the Corinthians. However, there is another passage in Isaiah chapter 52, which is even more relevant to what Christ told Thomas here, but the two sort of go hand in hand. Once again, we will cite the prophecy of the spread of the gospel in verse 7 of that chapter but this time include the rest of the passage. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publishes peace, that brings good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that says unto Zion, thy God reigns. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice, with the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye, when Yahweh shall bring again Zion. Break forth into joy, sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem, for Yahweh has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. Jerusalem without the Edomites, of course. Yahweh has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now, of course, the Jerusalem that is redeemed does not include the Edomite Jews who are destined to be destroyed. So as the prophet continues, the true children of Israel are now commanded to separate themselves from the wicked. In verse 11 of Isaiah 52. Depart ye, depart ye, go ye out from thence, touch no unclean. We will strike the word thing because it's talking about people. The word thing was added by the King James translators. It does not belong. Go ye out of the midst of her. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of Yahweh, those who have the Spirit of God. For ye shall not go out with haste, nor go by flight. For Yahweh will go before you, and the God of Israel shall be your rearward. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled, my servant. This is a reference, a messianic prophecy referring to Christ. My servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, 
His visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So, in his marred visage, in his marred appearance, so shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him, for that which had not been told them they shall see, and that which they had not heard, they didn't hear it from its original source. They didn't hear it from God itself, from God himself. And that which they had not heard, they shall consider. That passage is indeed a messianic prophecy. And the final verses describe Christ and presage his words to Thomas here. The kings and nations which came from Abraham and were sprinkled with the mercy of Christ received the gospel through hearing the gospel, they saw and heard the things which they had not seen or heard in the past, as it is explained in Isaiah chapter 64, which we also just cited. For that, they would be blessed because they accepted the gospel, which they heard from others. The gospel of God, the gospel of Christ, which they heard from others besides Christ. Now John states something which he will elaborate upon in the final chapter of his gospel account. Now indeed also many other signs Yahshua did before his students, things which are not written in this book. But these things are written in order that you may believe that Yahshua is the anointed son of Yahweh, and that believing you would have life in his name. And some manuscripts have eternal life in his name. Some ancient manuscripts, the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codices Ephraimi Siri and Beze. So here John admits that he is not given a full account of the deeds of Christ. While the other gospels describe some of the things, some of the other things which Christ had done, None of them include nearly as much as John has in this chapter and in the final chapter of his gospel, which follows. But as John seems to have expressed here, he only intended to relate enough of the events surrounding the ministry, death, and resurrection of Christ so that the children of God scattered abroad may know that their Redeemer had come and that their promise of redemption was accomplished that they may have that they may have reconciliation to their god the grasping of the tree of life by the adamic man in genesis is the life which they may have in his name or in some manuscripts the eternal life in his name which is mentioned by john here once again, this demonstrates that Yahshua Christ himself is the tree of life from the beginning. And he came to give that life to the branches, the various nations and people descended from Adam. So while David had written the 16th Psalm, he was also prophesying something that was ultimately assured in Christ, where he said, therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. 
My flesh also shall rest in hope, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life, in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. This concludes our commentary on John chapter 20. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel.